You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Would you turn with me back to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2, sorry, Ecclesiastes 1. Verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. But in much wisdom is much vexation. And And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come now to hear you speak in your word. Pray, God, that you would give us courage and faithfulness to stare at these words, to understand these words, to re-understand the world in light of these these words, and then, above all else, to trust in the God who has spoken these words to us. Bless us as we study what you've given us. In your name we pray, amen. Daffodils. Every spring, daffodils. I was looking out my bedroom window this morning, and our neighbor has a, uh, we have have two neighbors, which I guess most people have, and in my neighbor's yards um, were daffodils. One neighbor who has completely given up, has appropriated most of the message of Ecclesiastes, but not the most important part of Ecclesiastes, um, has a yard with, I don't know, one yard high daffodils. Millions of daffodils. Our other neighbor um, clearly tried to plant a garden. In the midst of that garden, instead of tomato plants and whatever it is that you grow where you garden, there are daffodils. Our yard filled with daffodils every spring. No matter what yard we have, even this new yard in this new house, it's just all daffodils. Only, always, everywhere, daffodils. Now, you could think, well, Brian, poison the daffodils. Get those spray gun things and go out there and spray the daffodils and see the daffodils shrivel and die, but then you still have daffodils. Dead daffodils, but daffodils. And give it three days, and you'll have more daffodils. I mow, thinking this, for at least a moment, will create joy as the daffodils are no longer visible. It will appear, at least on the surface, to be mostly grass, and it lasts for exactly a handful of moments. And then, literally, by the next day, the grass has not grown hardly at all, But what's peeking up above all of that grass? Daffodils. Daffodils everywhere, all the time, 
no matter what you do. Um, this is what Ecclesiastes is about. At the end of the day, I've decided it's about daffodils. All daffodils, all the time, no matter what you seek to do. And I don't care if you're a banker, if you own, you're CEO of a company, if you are a stay-at-home, full-time daffodil fighter, whatever it is that you may think you're doing with your life, you think you've created meaning, whatever that meaning may be, and now finally having achieved or sought enough pleasure or enough diligence in waging war on the daffodils, you always get daffodils. There is no escaping from the cycle that is spring in Denver and the sheer proliferation of daffodils. And that, that is what this book is about. It is about, as we saw last week, the fact that no matter what you do, or how matter how much you rage against the rising of the sun, guess what? Tomorrow it will come up. No matter how much you want the wind to not blow this way, but instead blow that way, it just blows wherever it wants to blow. Spend all of your life pouring water into the ocean. It will not rise one inch. There is a sort of futility at the heart of life um, that, that here's the secret. Most of us don't have the courage to look at. In fact, the vast majority of human history is an attempt to not look at it. To live either in denial of it, to to simply say it's not there, to plug our ears and to blind our eyes and to say, no, um, we'll find meaning somewhere, um, or to simply spend your life trying to overcome the futility um, that, that is what life under the sun seems to be, but always, everywhere, are daffodils. Our attempts to fill our life with Netflix is simply an attempt to mow the lawn. But by evening, tonight, like go home, mow your lawn, do an experiment. It'll be a restful, Sabbathy sort of lawn mowing. Um, by the evening, before you go to bed, there will be daffodils. The attempt to simply strive or work hard enough, to achieve enough, to gain enough wealth, um, spend your wheels, the entirety of your life, um, giving your life to a company, neglecting your family, whatever the thing may, might be, and there's still daffodils. There is no escaping the vanity, the seeking to shepherd the wind that life is. For review, before we jump into where we're going to go today, which is essentially, essentially going to lay out Solomon's qualifications and what he actually set out to do, um, for review, I want to remind you of three ideas from last week um, and spend a little bit of time with one of them that we didn't address last week. First, um, this phrase, vanity of vanities, um, in some of your translations, uh, I think uh, it, it, it says something along, it, it, in addition to vanity of vanities, there's other phrases that are used that simply mean nothingness of nothingness, emptiness of emptiness. Um, that, that's not what the phrase in Hebrew means. It means literally wind of wind, vapor of vapor. This is not a text about um, some sort of Nietzschean meaninglessness of life. 
It is, and it's very important that you understand this nuance. It's not about meaninglessness. It's about futility. Um, it, it is vapor of vapors. It, it, it's not that there's nothing there. It's that you have no control over what is there. No matter how you set up your life, no matter how many spreadsheets or how many Google calendars you have, um, Brady and Justin aren't here. They have more Google calendars than any human couple should ever have. They have one for everything. They have like a morning Google calendar and an evening Google calendar and a work Google calendar and a whatever. Um, no, no matter how many Google calendars the Rileys set up, um, I hope they hear that. Uh, no, no matter um, how, how, how much you structure your budget, um, there will always come that end of the year bill that you didn't see coming. Um, no matter how many Google calendars you set up, someone will call, someone will run late, you'll get a flat tire. Um, uh, the reality is, is that this world is about as manageable as wind is. Um, you cannot control it, you cannot direct it, you cannot guide it, no matter what sort of implementations you put in place. And so the first phrase, vanity of vanities. The second phrase, which we spent an extended period of time talking about last week, is under the sun. Solomon is setting out to do a particular kind of experiment, an experiment that is recorded for us um, in Kings. It is the story of a man who attempts to live as though there is nothing more than what we see within the horizon of this life. Um, to see and to measure and to assess, can anything be gained? Can any sort of leverage or power or sovereignty be, be gained within this world as far as we perceive it under the sun? And so under, under the sun speaks to the scope of this experiment. Um, and the scope is broad. It includes everything, everyone, everywhere that we can see, that we can measure, that we can touch. So the second phrase, under the sun. The third phrase, which I want us to address today, which we didn't look at last week, was found in verse 3. It's a repeated phrase. It's used 10 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so it is an important phrase for understanding the argument of this book. Look at verse 3. What does man, and here's the word, gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, the way to interpret that uh, or translate that is what does man profit? Um, uh, I think the best possible translation is, um, and it really is the kind of the root meaning of this idea of gain or profit, um, what sort of leverage can one attain? What sort of power can one actually have? Um, what sort of influence can one have over the world under the sun? And this is the perennial problem that all of humanity for all of time has faced and attempted to deny. It is, in fact, one of the scariest realities in the universe. So scary, in fact, it haunts all of us. It's clearest, as we're going to find um, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's clearest 
and most baseline kind of ace of spades, which gets played over and over and over again, is the reality of death. Um, This was the, the heart of the story of the hideous strength. It is Man in rebellion against God, seeking to to overcome that ace of spades, perhaps with a joker, I don't know. Um, uh, Attempting with all of his might to become an eternal being, to to gain some sort of foothold, some sort of leverage over our own lives or over the universe itself. Many political movements, including communism, have been driven by the idea that we can change the very nature of the world. We can undo the very fabric of reality. That we can find a way through legislation, through rebellion, through through shifting consciousness, simply to alter the way that the world actually is. The whole history of mankind could largely be defined as a straining after an attempt um, to to somehow gain leverage over the vapor, to somehow um, gain direction or control or power over the vapor. And we look at it um, both individually in our own lives. Can I somehow manage my life in such a way that I have control over it? And and not only do individuals do this, but societies do this. Can we as a society, can we as humanity find a way to gain some measure of leverage, some measure of control over the nature of history, over the nature of reality itself? And that drive is, is propelled throughout history by the sheer absolute terror, refusing to look beyond the sun, We are faced with an abyss. Managing our lives, dieting really, really well. You can get hit by a car walking out the door of your house, depending on how the door is situated. We have ultimately no control, no leverage, no power. And that fact is terrifying. So how do we try to patch that? How do we try to fix that? How how do we try to overcome that reality in this life? We do it as individuals. Um, Solomon is going to address three primary ways that we seek to do that as individuals. He's going to start with the notion of pleasure. He sees pleasure not merely as this kind of aimless, hedonistic pursuit. Um, Instead, he sees it as an attempt to fill that void. If we can just fill it with enough junk, if we can just be blind or deaf um, to to the reality of the scariness of this world, the uncontrollability of this world, um, then somehow we can fool ourselves into thinking that there is real meaning, there is real leverage. And so we fill it with alcohol, we fill it with marijuana, we fill it with sex, we fill it with endless droning, empty entertainment, whatever the thing might be. Um, we, we try to fill it with the attraction of others or just being well liked. We try to find any way we can to make meaning. And I think he begins there because this is perhaps the emptiest approach. It's where he's going to be next week. So look forward to lots of comments about Netflix next week. It is, in fact, like filling your ears with cotton and covering your eyes with one of those masks that people put on on planes. I guess other people wear them other times, but it's weird. 
attempting with whatever might we can muster to flood the abyss, to flood the vapor with our own desirable pleasures. So we fill our lives with emptiness and busyness, seeking to find the next point at which we can stand and leverage things in order to find happiness. What else do we do? He's going to turn then and then begin to describe toil, work. Um, This is an attempt to, in the midst um, of the ocean, caving, um, uh, crashing in on the beach as the tide rolls in, an attempt to work as fast and as furiously as possible to build sandcastles. Sandcastles that will finally last, will finally overcome um, the constantly encroaching sea. And so we spin our wheels futilely, um, trying to build up some sort of career, um, some sort of amassed wealth, um, some sort of measure of accomplishment. Um, If you're particularly gifted, some sort of building of companies or of of some institutions um, that at the end of your life will have lasting power and meaning to resist the ocean's tide. Think cities like New York, built by men desperate to have names that last forever. Or our great learning. Um, My wife constantly chides me, and for the very first time I considered that she might have some sort of valid point, not totally valid, but sort of valid, as we moved recently of over how many books are enough. My constant answer is just one more, or three more, depending on, well, this week, three more. Um, How much more can you fill a library with knowledge and how much more can you learn and how much more can you study um, to gain just the right perspective, the right angle, the right understanding, the the, the richer, better understanding of how the world actually is. I think this is at the root uh, of all sorts of conspiracy theories. If we can just get to the bottom of what's actually going on in Ukraine or the bottom of what's actually going on um, with, with whatever war, whatever political movement happens to be going on. If we can just get there, th- then we can see the world as it is. Then we can understand the world as it is. Um, and, and then we'll gain an actual foothold um, of a point by which we can begin to leverage our lives and control and shepherd the wind. Societies do this. I mean, what is the insanity that is sexual or gender discourse in our country nowadays? It's about lust, but it's about something much, much more than just lust. It's an attempt to defiantly shake our fist in the face of the wind Say, I can be whatever I want to be. I can find pleasure wherever I want to find pleasure. The convulsions around COVID. It, it, again, none of this is saying, not again, but saying, none of this is saying there's not anything that should be done. But there's a difference between Trying to live with the grain of the universe and understanding our powerlessness in it 
and the philosophies that drove zero COVID. Do you see the difference? One is an attempt to shepherd the wind. One is an attempt to control outcomes, to to finally establish um, the outcome that we want above everything else. And one is acknowledging reality and trying to live in a way that aligns with it. Parents, this is a constant temptation with your children. If I can just get the order right, if I can just check the right boxes, if I can just have the right conversation at the right moment, at the right time, if I can just get them to the right schools, if I can just um, have uh, the right sort of rules or disciplinary actions or whatever the thing might be, I can produce the outcome, the guaranteed outcome that I want for my child. I can make them brilliant, godly, and exceedingly rich to take care of me in my old age, obviously. But you can't. My wife and I are confronted with that right now as two of our kids are about to leave and go to college. Acknowledging the vaporousness of this life is is not to say there's nothing to do, that there's nothing meaningful to do. It's simply to say, I don't get to shepherd the wind. I can't. The outcomes aren't mine to determine. Remember waking up um, when Hayes and Molly turned 15. My father passed away when um, I was 15. And I've been struck by a handful of things that particular morning. One of them was the sheer absolute terror that I hadn't had any instruction on what to do next. I hadn't even seen it done poorly. I'd just seen it not done. Not because my dad was a bad dad, but because he was not there. And there was a great deal of freedom to be found in stopping for a moment and just acknowledging, I can't shepherd the wind. That there's no controlling outcomes. And yet all of history and all of society has been driven, controlled, compelled by a kind of deep-seated subconscious anxiety over the fact that we can't do it. There is no leverage to be gained, no control over outcomes. The sun just keeps coming up. The streams just keep flowing into the ocean. The wind just keeps blowing. And if we could stop for a moment and not jump to kind of the pious answer and do a little Jesus juke right here. If we could just stop for a moment and stare at that. In fact, it's vitally important that we stare at that. This is wisdom wisdom literature. All wisdom literature in the Bible is seeking to help us understand how to live well in the world. God ordained that Ecclesiastes would be here for us. Which is to say, God believes it's absolutely important that you spend at least a moment staring into the abyss. You spend at least a moment confronted with the reality of your own powerlessness. 
that you spend just a moment considering the glorious and terrifying reality of how small you and I actually are. You are tiny. Like if you were a gnat, you'd be the kind of gnat that you don't know is there. Not the annoying gnats that you see and alters your course when you're walking in the evening or that you find yourself this morning. I was swatting a gnat. It was a fly. And uh, hit myself in the face. Um, It's important that we stare at it. In order for us to live well, but I also think it's important for us to stare at it. For for the sake of understanding how how much of, of this reality, which I believe is universally known and almost universally denied, um, drives the, the aimlessness and the foolishness of those around you. There is at the heart of understanding Ecclesiastes a, a, a certain kind of sympathy um, that arises as you look at a world spinning out of control and yet desperately claiming that it's in control. As you see neighbors sucked into the vortex of that lie, um, there, there should come a kind of realistic sympathy that grows out of seeing the world as it actually is and understanding why your neighbors seem so lost. But it's scary. Um, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the founder of Labrie, um, used to have uh, lots of artists and philosophers and all kinds of, or, or people who thought they were philosophers, uh, show up at Labrie, um, many of them atheists. And um, he, he describes uh, in, a, in a handful of his books the process that he would walk through with those atheists when they showed up at Labrie. And essentially that process was a step-by-step one in which he um, wanted to bring them to the, to the edge of the abyss that they were standing on and simply point it out to them to make it at least intellectually undeniable that if all we have is life under the sun, then we have nothing. He has a warning, actually, in one of his books, like to do this, to walk with people through this, that sometimes the resistance to God, the resistance to the existence of God, the goodness of God, the, 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 the sovereign rule and grace of God is so massive, so great. The desire um, to, to make and, and, and find meaning under the sun and within their own lives and within their own art and within their own work and their own thinking and their own construction of a life is so great um, that, that, that when you get them to finally see the abyss, the despair can be utterly overwhelming become a kind of self-destruction. So, understand that what we're setting out to do this summer with this book is an incredibly dangerous task and an absolutely necessary and essential one. It is to see the abyss for what it is 
Now, that was all introduction. Where does Solomon go next? First, he establishes his credentials. He says, I, the preacher, or the gatherer, or the gatherer, or the convener, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So that's what he's setting out to do in these pages, in these chapters. He wants to take a step back and apply wisdom and knowledge and understanding to discover what's actually there, to discover the nature of how life and the world actually works. Um, you look, just flip over, well, for me, flip over the next page. Um, look at verse 17. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He seeks it to look at the nature of the world and see and understand it, wisdom, but also madness. How does the nature of the world drive people to live in such a way that it is utterly insane? And folly, how how does it drive people to even understanding or at least sort of understanding how the world is um, to to do things that are just intrinsically foolish and self-destructive? Solomon set out to do this. We have the record of him setting out to do this in the book of Kings. Um, What he's describing here is a certain kind of fall. Um, He fell into idolatry, he fell into sin. In other words, um, this wasn't just kind of a, an intellectual experiment that he did in a closet somewhere with a pen and a piece of paper. He actually practiced it. He actually threw himself into it. And what we're seeing here is his testimony on the other side of that experiment. His um, analysis at the end of his life, looking back um, at the last few years, even decades of his life, and trying to understand it, trying to make sense of it, and to then to re-describe the world with wisdom, and I believe godliness. I think Ecclesiastes is actually evidence um, that, that Solomon actually returned to the Lord in his old age. A couple of things. One, he's smarter than all of you and me. In other words, if your approach to Ecclesiastes is merely let's hear what he has to say and see if I can do better. Maybe he didn't really explore pleasure. Maybe he didn't build, if he'd built one more building or if he'd had a career in finance, he really would have understand the definition of meaning. Maybe if he read the latest scholarship, then that would have been the clincher. Um, If that's your approach, you're an idiot. Solomon is smarter and wiser and better at observing the world and understanding the nature of reality than all of us and everyone. (laughs) Um, And he had the means to pursue all of the things he's going to analyze for us to their absolute conclusion. Next week, um, as, as we begin to look at pleasure and we begin to look at toil and we begin to look at um, the, his actual beginnings of his experiment, um, uh, we're going to talk about the details of what all of that entailed for Solomon. He had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. He had lots and lots and lots of sex. He 
ate well, like really well, like better even than we eat, and we eat better than anyone in history. He ate and drank to his heart's delight. He accomplished massive things. I mean, he built the temple, like the dwelling place of God. Like whatever it is that you think you've built, it's not the dwelling place of God, right? Like he built a skyscraper that's really tall. Does God live there? He built a place that God said, that's where I want to be. In fact, I'm just going to be there. Great place. Like he did everything. He, he did everything in his power to pursue pleasure. He accomplished um, as much as any of the kings of Israel, perhaps more than any of the kings of Israel, short of Jesus himself. Um, he did all of it to their absolute end. He did it with all of his might. All, in fact, he, him, the, his use of the word toil um, is not just toil like he went to work every Monday um, and he hated it and it was tiring and he was exhausting and then he came home. No, his use of the word toil is actually going to use the word toil to describe how hard he had to work to pursue pleasure. Like he worked really, really hard at having fun. He worked really, really hard at, at building meaningful things. He worked really, really hard at knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He worked as hard as anyone could possibly work, and he was more gifted than anyone who had lived um, up to his time and, and really anyone who lived after. So he is king over Israel and Jerusalem. He is the son of David, and he is eminently qualified to describe this world as he sees it. There is, I think, a lesson in here for us. Um, One of the the plagues of our modern age is the assumption that by just watching a handful of YouTube videos or following the right crazy person on Twitter or paying that $29.99 to have access to that secret website um, that gives you Incredible insight into what's happening with the Obamas, whatever it might be. Um, uh, we we have, have lost the ability in our society to study a thing diligently, to look at it all the way down. I was reading uh, this week an old systematic theology by getting Maastricht. And what was startling to me as I was reading it um, was first myself and then most, pa- most, most pastors I know in the world who our exploration of knowledge and our understanding of church history and our understanding of the development of thought in the church um, and the exegesis of the Bible and, and, and how little <laughs> of that work any of us have really done. And I think it's, it's typical of our age. We, we believe ourselves to be experts on everything because we watched a handful of YouTube videos or followed a bunch of tweets or paid $29.99 for a membership in the secret club about the secret politicians and the whatever. Solomon studied a thing studied these things really to even his own detriment. He knew a thing. He looked at it all 
the way to the ground. And he was better at this than any of us. So we come to Solomon, we're listening to a voice that has real authority. If you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know about any of this Christianity stuff, you thought our singing was weird, um, whatever the thing might be, you don't know what to do with the Bible and God and all of it, I, I would love to hold out the argument for you that if you're going to listen to anyone describe for you the nature of reality and the futility of this life, Solomon is an authoritative voice. A voice you should listen to. Um, A voice that represents an experience um, all the way to the bottom of all of the ways that humanity seeks to and all the ways that you and I might seek to personally fill our life with meaning and leverage and control. In other words, you should listen to him um, as we progress over the next few weeks, which then assumes you're going to come back over the next few weeks weeks. He's describing something that is pervasive in our society. Our, our best, some of our best love stories, The Great Gatsby, every decent war film ever made, well, mostly ever made, at least since Vietnam, um, the movie Wall Street, the movie Citizen Kane, and what in the world is the meaning daffodil in the movie Citizen Kane, which brings us full circle but I'm not done yet, so it's like a half circle. Um, Like all of these stories are about futility. They're about um, people pursuing um, either valor in battle um, that that ends up being vanity um, or uh, the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of pleasure in the case of Gatsby or the pursuit of permanence in the the case of Citizen Kane, um, whatever the thing might be, um, they're all about these um, seemingly honorable pursuits or less honorable, whatever the, um, with Gatsby in particular, um, whatever the case may be, just pursuing with all their might to to find some some point of leverage, some point of meaning, some point of power or control in one vein and it being crushed. Um, one of my favorite novels of all time, Soldier of the Great War, and one of my favorite movies of all time, The Hidden Life, are, are simply positive spins. That they're, um, If you want to get kind of the nice therapeutic end to where this book is headed, um, those are two great places to start. Essentially, what is the best sort of life, the wise sort of life, to be lived under the sun? But it's important in all of it to remember the daffodils keep coming. Look at Solomon's now conclusion. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. His assessment of the world, this is kind of a a short poetic summary um, after his extended poetic observation last week, essentially this. The world is crooked. It's bent. There's something unsatisfying about it. There's something that never quite get, gets you where you want to go. His conclusion after exploring all of it is that there's a bentness to all of it. There's a, a bentness to all of it that can't be straightened out. You can't work hard enough to straighten out the path and get finally where it is you desperately want to go and think you deserve to go. 
There's a bentness such that your great-grandchildren, again, as we mentioned last week, will have no idea what you did. (laughs) They probably won't know your name, unless you're one of those weird families that recites family trees and all that. Not that that's weird. If that's who you are, it's a little weird. Um, There is a bentness to all of it, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Um, um, Try to fill up your life with endless pleasures. Push those pleasures all the way into the corner, trying to make meaning out of all of it. I'm trying to find something, something to stand on in all of it, and it will never, ever, ever be enough. There is not enough Wagyu steaks in the universe to fill me up. I haven't tried because I can't afford to, but I'm trusting Ecclesiastes with that. There isn't enough sex. There isn't enough affection from others. Um, There's not enough drink. Um, There's not enough mind-numbing drugs, whatever the thing may be, to, to fill up the ocean of what is lacking. So Solomon's conclusion, looking out at a world under the sun, is to say it is irrevocably bent, and you cannot straighten it. It is unsatiably hungry. And you can't fill it with enough food or drink or pleasures forevermore. Happy Sunday. And then, after seeing all of this, what does he say? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. After seeing all of that, where does he arrive? I'm more confused, more frustrated. That word vexation is a marvelous word. (laughs) It carries with it frustration, confusion, puzzlement. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There's nothing under the sun that will make it straight. There's nothing under the sun that will satisfy. There's no measure of accomplishment, no accumulation of wealth, no amount of pleasure, at the end of which you will say, now I have meaning. I want to end by pointing out one clue. Solomon's really kind to us in this book. He drops hints and clues all along the way about where joy and wisdom is to be found. Our text today has one in it, and it's marvelous. Look at it with me. Verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven or under the sun. And it is an unhappy business, here it is, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. His experiment is one that is under the sun, and right here he, 
Well, he cracks the firmament for us a little bit and lets us see something. He lets us see something that will actually be foundational to making sense of this book and making sense of the conclusions that he draws throughout this book. To look at the crookedness of the world and to make sense of it, you must first begin to establish that God is the one who has made this world crooked. This is a hard thing to do. Um, to, to make sense of the fact that, that hungers never cease, that endless pleasures never satisfy, you have to first see that God made it that way. You see, the pinprick of hope in a sentence that even by itself seems stark and discouraging is that the beginning place of learning how to live in a world like this one and to do so well and to do so, dare I say, with joy and not despair is to begin with the very simple confession that this life, this toil, the toil of pleasure, the toil of work, the toil of wisdom and knowledge is a toil that has been given to us by God. Life under the sun is not all that there is. But the life that we live under the sun is a life in all of its brokenness, in all of its delights, in all of its endless cycles, in all of our powerlessness, all of our smallness, um, our lightness of being. To quote Tolstoy, it is, is a gift now, right now, it might not be a gift you want. But the confession of Solomon is that all of it has been given to you and to me by God himself. Let's pray and prepare for communion.